This evening is the first part of a two-part talk on personal mythology. So if after this evening's talk you find yourself feeling at all agitated or you have some questions, <laughs> it would be a great blessing if you could perhaps restrain and think that they may well be responded to in the second part. Possibly not also. <laughs> this evening I'd like to speak about personal mythology and revelation. Many of the fairy tales we listen to through our lives and much of the mythology that we absorb revolves around a very central and fundamental theme. And in different forms, that theme is one of awakening. It is one of revelation. In our different stories and myths, we hear the message about awakening from the false through discovering what is true. The heroines and the heroes of our stories and our myths cast aside the disguises and the identities that have previously confined them through discovering the truth of who they are. That understanding, in understanding the truth of who they are, as that emerges, there is a dropping away of that which is false. The scullery maid is actually revealed to be a princess. And in discovering that she is a princess, she leaves behind the world of the scullery maid with all of its drudgery and struggle and sorrow. The frog, as it turns out, was actually a prince falsely imprisoned in a form that was not his own. The ugly duckling turns out to be a graceful swan who has been imprisoned by her own delusions and by the delusions of others. All of these stories are stories of unmasking, of being liberated from disguises and identities which have been prisons, which have served to suffocate and silence all that was genuine and authentic and free within these beings. These stories of awakening, of revelation, describe a coming home, a renewal, a rediscovery of that which is most true. In our fairy tale themes, what is being described is an awakening from ignorance, an awakening from delusion. Delusion and ignorance which has led our heroines and our heroes to accept the false as being true. The power of the delusions illustrated in our mythology is such that it sentences those involved to embody a counterfeit life, a life in which they are exiled from
from their essential nature. Now these themes of revelation, themes of awakening, are very central to the core of the spiritual path and the spiritual life. There are endless myths, endless teachings, which retell these stories in different ways. And I would just like to relate to you perhaps the most frequently encountered of those stories. There was a child made all of salt who very much wanted to know where she had come from. So she set out on a long journey and traveled to many lands in pursuit of this understanding. Finally, she came to the shore of the great ocean. How marvelous, she cried, and stuck one foot in the water. The ocean beckoned her in further, saying, If you wish to know who you are, do not be afraid. The salt child walked further and further into the water, dissolving with each step, and at the end exclaimed, And now I know who I am. Siddhartha the prince sat beneath the Bodhi tree and arose as the Buddha, the awakened one, the one who had discovered the truth. The stories that we encounter in so many different spiritual traditions speak again and again of the immediacy and the depth of this revelation and this awakening. There takes place a fundamental transformation within the consciousness in the face of this revelation. This awakening, it seems, really has very little to do with time. It has very little to do with gradual improvement and progress. The veils are removed. The shadows are seen through in the power of understanding. There is a wonderful Zen line that illustrates it. When they say, when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. (laughs) It is not that the power of delusion is gradually dispersed and chipped away at, you know, and worked on and gradually worked out, but rather the power of insight, the power of revelation and understanding really what is true is powerful enough to dispel the chains and the power of delusion. And in doing so, dispel the struggles and the conflicts and the sorrows that are intrinsic to delusion, intrinsic to believing the false to be true. Another dimension of this revelation, of this awakening, is that it is so profound and transforming that it's far deeper than just a a temporary or a fleeting glimpse of truth. On a cellular level, in understanding and deep understanding, on a cellular level, there is the abandonment of the false. So Buddha once said, wood can be turned into ashes, but ashes cannot return to wood. According to the stories, to the teachings of revelation, 
according to the stories of the spiritual path. This awakening to what is true is an understanding that is so saturated with joy, with happiness, and with peace that in it there is a laying down of the burdens of grasping, of division, of the pain of separation. There is a laying down of the suffering of homelessness that is always present whenever we are exiled from what is true. In awakening to what is genuine and authentic, this is not a simply a personal revelation. In awakening to what is genuine and authentic in our understanding of this moment, that which is genuine and true is seen and reflected and heard in all things. It is a seeing through, a seeing beneath the world of appearances. The bottom line is that no one complains about enlightenment. There is no postscript to the story of the toad where the prince longs for a few more weeks of hopping about in the slime. (laughs) The scullery maid revealed as a princess is not cherishing more memories, long memories fond memories that she would wish to repeat of a few more scrubs. The swan doesn't look back with longing to her time as an ugly duckling, wishing that she could learn a little more about the pain of homelessness and exile. And no matter how many Buddhist sutras you read, you will not find any stories where the Buddha is complaining about awakening and wishing he had a few more nights in the palace of feasting and carousing. It seems that the truth of awakening, the truth of understanding, the truth revealed in Revelation is so powerful that it shatters the chains of the past. There is nothing missing, nothing absent, and nothing to be gained. It is not an extinction, but a fullness of being. And these themes that we encounter again and again in our fairy tales and in our mythology, these themes that are so central to spiritual teaching touch us in very deep ways. In many ways, they resonate within us and touch a chord of response. For many of us, they spark a very powerful inspiration and a very powerful seeking, a longing seeking is an essential stage of every spiritual journey. Within the stories that we've listened to and read and heard of, in many ways we see our own stories reflected in different forms. In our lives, we search endlessly for happiness, for intimacy, for oneness, for peace. At times it seems we are almost compelled to continue in this search for freedom, to continue in a search to dissolve barriers and separations. And it is true for many of us that no matter how many times we encounter hardship and sorrow and disappointment, 
no matter how many times we find ourselves being overwhelmed, we are possessed of almost a kind of homing instinct that leads us again and again to continue this search, to look for where happiness lies, to look where freedom lies. Intuitively, we are returned to sit and to walk amidst difficulty. Somewhere within us, we do not believe in this world of appearances. We do not believe in the world of judgments or descriptions to be the truth of who we are. In many ways, the spiritual path is simply another step, another extension, and another dimension of the paths that we have followed in our lives, searching for what we intuitively sense to be possible. Intuitively, we know that to understand, to live a life of confusion, to live a life of separation or conflict, is a life which is false to us. In many ways, a life which is a betrayal or an abandonment of that which is most authentic and genuine within ourselves. I was a native shaman who once says that we live in a way that is most unnatural to what we understand to be true. And we know this. It's not always so easy to stay so clearly connected with our intuition. And it is not that our search is without faltering or stumbling. And that faltering and stumbling is not surprising. When we listen to the themes of our world and to the messages of our world, sometimes we are listening to the story of collective delusion. We see the way in our world, a sanctuary is promised to us in the world of appearance and performance, in the world of possession and attainment. We see in our world the worship of success and prestige and pleasure and security. We see in our world the fear of aging and change and death. And sometimes we perhaps have shared in this delusion, striving to be special, striving to make our mark upon the world, striving to hold on to things against all odds, striving to wear the clothes of gain, the clothes of success, and the clothes of invincibility, and equally struggling to deny and to avoid that which we feel challenged by. When we listen to ourselves, it is not necessarily so that we always listen to the voices of clarity either. Sometimes when we listen inwardly, we discover how very fascinated we are by the world of appearances, the personal world of appearances. We see how fascinated and entranced we are by our own personal world of judgments of images of descriptions that we hold about ourselves and that we extend to others. Sometimes we listen to ourselves and we see how imprisoned we are by our hungers and fears. We have traveled all these paths. 
of avoidance, of gaining, of striving, of achieving, of perfecting. We have done this work. We have shared in these stories, and in many ways they do not ring true to us. We are, I think, also aware of the consequences of these stories and these delusions on a personal and on a collective level. We are aware that you cannot have delusion without prejudice, without division, without exploitation, without pain, without sorrow, and without suffering. Sometimes it seems almost like there is no end to delusion. I was listening to an interview with a a Serbian man who said, I had a neighbor and we raised our children together and we shared our food and we helped each other out in many ways. One day I called him a Muslim and he called me a Serb and the next day I killed him. These are words that describe extraordinary delusion. But they are no more extraordinary than the young girl, anorexic girl, who stands in front of a mirror and believes herself to be fat. We are so entranced by our belief systems. And yet, at the same time, there is something within us, intuitively, that refuses to bless delusion. There is somewhere something within our heart and within our consciousness that inspires us to follow another path. We know that it is compassion that will heal our world. We know that it is wisdom that will banish war and division. We know that understanding will free us from separation. It is not formulas and not strategies, not willpower and not forcing that will ever bring about change in our world or in ourselves. But compassion and peace, healing and happiness, these are the most natural embodiments of living in accord with that which is true. These are the most natural embodiments of living in accord with that which is authentic, within ourselves and within all things. Freedom is an extraordinarily personal revelation in the sense that it cannot be delivered to us by anybody else, nor can it ever be taken away. No one else can ever deliver to us peace or wisdom or compassion. This is something we need to explore within ourselves. Now, intuition guides us to the spiritual path, to a life of letting go, a life of simplicity, a life of acceptance, and a life of inquiry. And yet, this intuition that guides us here is at times also in conflict with our own apprehensions and our own fears. We see that although on one hand we long for freedom, we also see, perhaps speaking to us inwardly, our desires to stay within the boundaries of what we know and what is familiar to us. 
We see our desires at times to stay with that which is safe, the identities, the territory that seems to offer us a certain certainty. No matter how many stories we hear about ducklings being transformed to swans and Buddha's awakening and toads turning into princess, no matter how many stories we hear about profound revelation, there is often a part of ourselves that would very much like to distance ourselves from these stories. That these must be special people with the right karma. You know, they've had good past lives, you know, or a good merit from somewhere. But surely this is not about me. Well, the news is. <laughs> the news is that enlightenment is not reserved for special people. It's not like you earn brownie points and gradually get there. You do not earn it. Matter of fact, you don't even get it. <laughs> There is something at times that we really rather like about our stories. We can have even a rather odd affection for our personal mythology, even though it may be rather painful. At least we know it. Despite the hardships and the conflicts and the disillusionments and the striving, the overcoming that we may encounter, we may still be somewhat unsure about whether we really feel willing to let go of our personal mythology, whether we really want to let go of our stories, of our identity. Somehow this seems like letting go of our life. It is certainly letting go of ourself as we know it. There are no guarantees. There are no promises, no promises, no promised rewards that are guaranteed as a result of radical renunciation. There are no guarantees that we're going to live happily ever after. And at times we may even find ourselves wondering whether this whole idea of enlightenment or revelation is somehow just a big hoax pro, you know, promoted by centuries of mystics. <laughs> <laughs> now, preferably, in an ideal spiritual path, this is how it would happen. In an ideal spiritual journey, this is how it would happen. First, we would discover boundless peace, <laughs> happiness, joy, and wisdom, and then we would let go. <laughs> That's how it would happen in the ideal path. Well, sadly and unfortunately, that's not the way it goes. First, we are asked to let go, and then to see what unfolds. Now, you know, this is not, you know, perhaps understandably, this is not a deal we feel all that comfortable with. <laughs> you know, there are no certainties, there's no proof, there's no guarantees. 
And I think faced with the possibility, even the barest possibility, of revelation or awakening, we actually face one of the deepest dilemmas of this path and of our own hearts. We greet the possibility of awakening and freedom often with a mixture of fear and longing, with a mixture of both allure and terror. Sometimes we hear many different words used to describe this kind of mystical awakening or this depth of revelation. Sometimes the words that we hear are shunyata, void of liberation, but we often hear too the word emptiness. And I think this word especially really gets us that emptiness is sometimes or somehow translated to mean annihilation, self-negation or self-destruction. Now, it is true to say that awakening is primarily concerned with seeing the end of separation and to see the end of separation is also to see the end of a separate self. Now, in many ways, I think we can sense the wonders that may be held within that possibility of awakening. Yet we may also very much fear it. We may have a whole lot of questions about you know, who or what is going to guide our lives. We may question whether the cessation of a separate self also means a cessation of uniqueness and creativity. What's going to inspire us to be creative or initiate things in our lives? And in many ways, you know, when our mind gets hooked into the stream of questioning, It seems that, you know, enlightenment's going to be fine if you're going to retire to a convent or fix up a cozy cave for yourself somewhere. But it also appears from the standpoint of the separate self that enlightenment may actually be a kind of barren experience, you know, somehow missing or, you know, uh, deprived of, of passion and love and creativity and direction. At the same time, we're pretty aware that you can't have a separate self and not have a personal world of struggle and suffering. So there is a longing also to see the end of pain and the end of separation. Now, there are many feelings that are often evoked when we inquire into the possibility of freedom, of awakening. Sometimes it is not uncommon to encounter a great deal of ambivalence. And some of that ambivalence is basically due to the fact that we like the idea of enlightenment. You know, it sounds like a terrific, wonderful idea. But we would like to be there to enjoy it. I mean, it doesn't really seem like there's much point in being enlightened if there's not going to be anybody there (laughs) to feel good about it, you know, and to feel happy about it, and to say, you know, and to praise oneself for the work we've done and all that stuff. This is a major, I have to say, this is a major problem. 
This is going to be a problem in the path. It is hard for us to digest a possibility of enlightenment, or the possibility of a way of being and a way of being alive in which we are absent. As a matter of fact, we are actually really willing to shed the difficult attributes of the separate self. You know, we're actually really happy to say farewell to the defensiveness, the anger, the jealousies, the judgments, you know, all that stuff that gives us such a hard time in our lives. We would be more than glad to let go of. But the thing is also true, sometimes we would like the best of all worlds. We actually rather see that getting rid of this is actually going to lead to a much happier self, an improved and perfected and more admirable self. And many times we would like to really rather retain the more admirable parts of ourselves. Now, there isn't actually any stories that say this is any real possibility. <laughs> the very nature of separation is that it is a magnet for suffering. The very nature of being invested in a separate self means that there will be always be other. And as long as there is a gap between self and other, there is boundless potential for conflict, for struggle, for pain. Awakening to what is true, to dissolve the false, is the whole purpose of the spiritual life. Awakening to what is true, to let go of the false, is the whole purpose of a path of inquiry and understanding. We are here to see through the world of appearances, to no longer be deceived, by the world of appearances, to shed the prison of a separate self, to shed the prison of separation. I'd like to <clears throat> read you something. Reality is simply the loss of the I. Lose the self by seeking its identity. It will automatically vanish, and reality will shine forth by itself. This is a direct method. There is no greater mystery than this, that we keep seeking reality, though in fact we are reality. We think that there is something hiding reality, and that this must be destroyed before reality is gained. How ridiculous. 
A day will dawn when you will laugh at all your past efforts. That which will be on the day you laugh is also here and now. When we enter into a contemplative time, a time of retreat, a time of being alone, a time when there is greater calmness and clarity within ourselves, I think sometimes we really encounter very directly the clash that there is between our fascination and longing for freedom and for understanding for truth and our equal fascination with the separate self and with the world of appearances we see how endlessly we become fascinated with our stories. There is a curious paradox that is revealed through meditation. I mean, the practice emphasizes great simplicity. We sit here, we pay attention, we are present. The mind calms down, becomes clearer. We are encouraged to cling nowhere, to dwell upon nothing. To understand the wisdom of impermanence, to understand the wisdom of transparency. And yet, as we do calm down, as we do become clearer, it seems that what is revealed to us actually is our story much more clearly. That which was previously vague and cloudy and foggy is actually staring us right in the face. It's right here with us. We see our thoughts and our memories and our feelings and our issues and our problems without all the kind of uh, veils that we have previously carried in an unclear mind. We see, at times, an endless amount of content, the way in which we carry the burdens of the past. We see our patterns of judgment and anger and fear. And in many ways, this seeing more clearly of our story is a kind of revelation. That which was previously vague or even hidden to us is suddenly available to us and clear to us. It is also true that this revelation can be greeted with some very different responses. And one of these responses is fascination. You know, we never knew we were such interesting people till we came on retreat. We become really fascinated. The immediacy or the closeness of our stories actually creates its own longing. We long to understand. We long to understand where did this all come from? How did it begin? You know, where was it? Where was the first judgment? You know. <laughs> Sometimes we want to trace our patterns back to their origins and their roots. You know, they must have had a source somewhere. There must have been something that happened. And maybe if we can find the source, we will also find the end. This is another delusion, by the way. Not finding the source does not mean finding the end. Sometimes it, the kind of longing is evoked if we want to get rid of this story because, again, we believe that this story is clouding reality. And then if we can get rid of the story, somehow reality is going to reveal itself. Sometimes we, want to ha we have the longing to fix ourselves, to have a better story, to become more perfect. Becoming fascinated with ourselves becoming fascinated with our story, can create its own addiction. It can create its own hunger. 
in being so intimate with our story as it emerges in a clearer space. Sometimes our whole quest for freedom, our whole quest for, for revelation actually is demoted. Or actually we think we're going to gain insight or we're going to gain freedom by getting rid of the false, by resolving our issues, by improving ourselves. I would mention that improving ourselves, the attempt to get rid of one thing, the attempt to gain another, is simply an effort to rewrite our stories. And in a very subtle way, it is a very deep grasping of the idea of self, of a separate self. Sometimes motivated by very great intentions. You know, there is the intention there to bring about the end of unhappiness, the end of sorrow, the end of suffering. Sometimes there's a real intention to seek for happiness and for peace and for openness. But sometimes we find, we will believe we will find the perfect self through ridding ourselves of the imperfect self. And at times we believe that the imperfect self is the primary obstacle to all that we seek for, that all that primary obstacle to everything that we feel is worthy and valuable. In doing this, or in following this pathway of trying to rewrite our stories, of getting rid of one thing and gaining another, we are actually following a very familiar pathway. It is a pathway we have followed many times in our lives, in our search for happiness, in a search for a resting place. Our lives are still being directed by our addiction to self. I feel it is really important, perhaps, even to entertain the notion that the true is not discovered through getting rid of the false but that the understanding of the true dissolves the false. And that our primary dedication needs to be understanding what is true and never to modifying that which is not true. Now, our sense of self, of course, is something that is of enduring interest in our lives. Out of our belief in self, which is our belief in the world of our appearance, is born our fears and our needs, our choices and our ambitions, our aversions and our opponents, all of these exist only in relationship to a separate self. From our notion of a separate self are born our judgments and out of our judgments are born our strategies, our avoidances and our grasping. Our sense of self, our belief in self, carries our stories and our dramas and our histories and our searches. It is a central figure in every moment of success and failure, in every moment of excitement and disappointment, in every moment of success and loss. It does seem, from the perspective of a separate self, that there is no experience complete without the self, either to make it happen or to have it happen too. And this sense of a separate self is the bearer, the carrier of our personal mythology. It is hard for us to conceive of a way of being which is not governed by the notion of self.
we even believe, well, the self got us this far in our lives and it's probably going to take us all the way to enlightenment. Or we may even believe that enlightenment's going to happen to me. Now, there is a finely balanced path to walk here that lies between the extremes of self-negation and annihilation and the extremes of trying to improve and fix and alter the self. Walking this finely balanced path really rests upon our willingness to consider the possibility that anything that is conditioned by grasping can never be the truth. That the world of appearances, which includes the world of judgments and labels and descriptions, can never be the truth of who we are. It is very easy to be busy within the world of appearances. And one of the greatest lessons we need to learn is the art of stillness, the art of simply listening. We need to be aware where in busyness we may actually miss the moments of stillness, the possibilities of stillness that are offered to us. I had a friend once in a monastery and she listened to her teacher speak many times about awakening, about freedom. And she actually got really tired of it because she was so busy. And she, so she went to her teacher and said, you know, it's not very well to talk about enlightenment. It's not very well to talk about awakening and maybe it's right for you but for me, I have so much to do. You know, I have so many, so many angers and hatreds and so many judgments and, and greed and jealousy. And I really need some teaching that tells me about working with all of this. And her teacher said to her, Madam, you are like a person who keeps chickens and goes around picking up the droppings instead of the eggs. There are entire spiritual practices that are devoted to resting with this one single question of who am I? And these practices are not designed to discover some perfect personal self. These practices are intended to lead us to look again and again at the world of appearances and to not be deceived, to not be deceived by anything which is conditioned, by anything which is constructed, by anything which is born of a belief in separation. To sit even with that question of who am I, it is not even looking for an answer. Any answer, in fact, that arises is going to be a diversion. In fact, as long as an answer arises, (laughs) we may still be diverted. We sit with this question. It is a way of sitting with stillness, of just listening without conditions, without looking for answers, 
It is sitting like a mountain that receives the wind, receives the rain, receives the sun, and is present. Present in the present of all, presence of all things. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from delusion. May all beings rest in stillness. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on April 13, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.